Years after its signing, Jefferson wrote of the Declaration of Independence that it was intended to be an expression of the American mind, and to give that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. The Declaration of Independence was not wholly original in its content. Instead, it was kind of an amalgamation of the foremost ideas of public right of the day, a mixing of all the greatest thinkers that Americans believed ought to be followed. In 1825, reflecting on the Declaration 49 years after its signing, in a letter to Henry Lee, Jefferson explained that the major thinkers of what he called public right that influenced his drafting of the Declaration of Independence are Aristotle, Cicero, people like John Locke. But Jefferson also lists someone who today has become quite obscure, but who in Jefferson's day was considered a martyr for liberty and the author of what has been dubbed by some scholars to be the textbook of the American Revolution. I'm talking about Algernon Sidney, the famous English Republican who dedicated his life to establishing a Republican government in England, free of monarchical power. And while Algernon was ultimately unsuccessful in his political aspirations, his life and writings inspired countless revolutionaries. Algernon Sidney was born on January 15th in 1623, in the burgeoning city of London. He was the offspring of two old and established English families. His mother was from the Percy family of Northumberland, a long line of earls famous for their military bravado, a strong sense of honour, and a penchant for rebelling against kings. One of his ancestors was Harry Percy, who had earned the nickname Hotspur for his willingness to throw himself headlong into battle. Today, Harry Percy, or Hotspur, is known through Shakespeare's play, Richard II, in which he helps overthrow one king and fights against another. Algernon's father, Robert Sidney's family, consisted of scholars devoted to the great exemplars of the past, admiring Romans such as Cato and Brutus. Sidney's father had an unusually large number of famous Roman busts in their family home, meaning Sidney grew up with an odd familiarity for the deeds of patriotic republicans. His home was also lined with thousands and thousands of books on philosophical, historical, and literary topics. In short, Algernon's family legacy was a combination of a sense of military pride and scholarly prestige. As a youth, Algernon was precocious, energetic, and gifted. But he was the second son of his family. His older brother would inherit the lion's share of the family's wealth and prestige, despite being by all accounts a lazy, incompetent, and immoral person. From a young age, Algernon had decided that merit should be the sole determinant of who should be in charge or in power, not age or family lineage. Still, for the 17th century, primogeniture was an unshakable norm, meaning that despite his talents, Algernon would be sidelined in favour of his older, yet infinitely less capable brother. After being educated in presumably a very rigorous manner considering his father's pedigree, Algernon along with his two brothers lived abroad in France while his father served as an ambassador. Algernon greatly impressed many of the French elite, with some describing him as having a huge deal of wit and much sweetness in nature. Throughout his life, Algernon would keep his razor-sharp sense of wit, but still, this alleged sweetness of nature rapidly dissipated, as no one would ever again refer to Algernon as an easy or sweet person to be around. Returning to England as a second son, Algernon's options for advancement were quite limited, and though he had no interest in joining the military, his lack of opportunity forced him into service in his early 20s. He briefly served in Ireland and then returned to England in 1642, just as England plunged into civil war. Just a quick bit of background on the English Civil War and why it started. All the way back in 1215, English barons staged a revolt against King John that eventually culminated in a peace agreement known as Magna Carta. Magna Carta guaranteed certain legal norms and rights, with the two most important being that the king could only raise taxes through the consent of Parliament and the principle of habeas corpus, today considered one of the essential safeguards of citizens' liberty. 
The principle of habeas corpus declares that when a person is arrested, a writ or warrant must be produced to detain someone legally. In other words, a person cannot be detained willy-nilly or without due cause. The citizen must be shown to have been breaking a law. Unlike most of medieval Europe, England's kings were not nearly as absolute as their European counterparts, such as France. There was a power-sharing dynamic between the king and parliament. But the king of Algernon's day, King Charles, had no interest in sharing any of his royal power. In 1629, he dismissed Parliament for 11 years, ruling without their input and raising revenue through dubious legal means. He levied heavy fines, sold monopoly rights and titles, and erected heavy customs duties, all without the requisite consent from Parliament. After 11 years of inactivity, Parliament banded together and passed the Grand Remonstrance, a long list of grievances against the king and his conduct during his 11-year personal dominion. Charles was furious at this remonstrance and eventually attempted to arrest five parliamentarians he believed had cooperated with the previously invading Scottish. But when the king arrived to capture his targets, he was rebuffed by the rest of Parliament, who refused to sell out their comrades and had kept their five colleagues' location a secret. Absolutely furious, Charles left London with plans to raise an army. The civil war between the king and Parliament had begun. Originally, Algernon had been part of the King's army while in Ireland, but once he returned, he promptly joined the cause of Parliament and never looked back. In 1644, Algernon was appointed as one of the 26 colonels tasked with reorganising the new model army. He quickly distinguished himself in the Battle of Marston Moor, a decisive battle which caused royalist forces to abandon Northern England for the rest of the war. Algernon became renowned for his valiant cavalry charge that left him severely wounded multiple times, earning him much praise from his comrades who admired his courage. But despite the reputation he earned on the battlefield and his willingness to serve, Algernon's wounds were severe and took him out of the fight even though he attempted to serve for another year. Disappointedly retiring from military life, Algernon was elected into the 1646 famous Long Parliament, which lasted another 11 years. During this time, Algernon displayed his rugged sense of independence. At a time when factions were forming and dissolving at a rapid rate, Algernon stuck to his principles and never followed courses of action because they were popular or would help advance his career. Though naturally aligning with some of the more radical members of Parliament, he still never really joined any particular group and always stayed true to himself. After the execution of Charles, the Commonwealth was established, a new political order without a king, headed by the leader of the Parliamentarian army, Oliver Cromwell. But before most, Algernon realised the oppressive nature of Cromwell's rule and began to despise Parliamentarian's former general. By 1653, Parliament held a vote to pass laws making elections more free and transparent. Knowing that this would threaten his power, Cromwell had his troops storm Parliament and force the members to leave. Most members of Parliament left quite promptly, knowing their lives were in danger. But Algernon was resolute and sat in his seat till he had to be threatened and then physically dragged out of Parliament by force. As a jab to Cromwell, whom he considered a dictator, Algernon organised a production of the play Julius Caesar, which Algernon played Brutus, the man who killed the tyrannical Caesar back in ancient Rome. The message was clear for Cromwell, who in any case already despised Algernon for his ridiculous stubbornness. During Cromwell's reign, Algernon was forced into retirement yet again. But, by 1658, Cromwell had died and Parliament reconvened with Algernon regaining his old seat. Due to his early experience and expertise with foreign policy, Algernon was sent off with a delegation representing England to arbitrate a peace between Denmark and Sweden. During these negotiations, Algernon was extremely forceful and refused to back down when confronted by the Swedish King Charles. Many were impressed by Algernon's confidence to be able to stand up to royalty. After all, he became renowned as one of the most stubborn Englishmen who ever lived. A treaty was signed between the three parties, and peace was secured in May 1660. 
While returning home, Algernon visited the University of Copenhagen, and while signing the visitor's book, he again shocked his observers when he signed in Latin, well, I'm saying it in English, This hand, enemy to tyrants, by the sword seeks peace with liberty. A little fun fact, this phrase is most commonly seen today on the state seal of Massachusetts. But while Algernon was abroad, the English Republic collapsed, and the monarchy was reinstated, with Charles' son, creatively named Charles II, for some reason they're always the same names, back on the throne. With the monarchy reinstated, former Republicans and Radicals were arrested for their crimes against the former king. While Algernon was not exactly happy with the monarchy of his turn, he was willing to acquiesce to Parliament's authority and obey the king. But Charles did not just want cooperation, he wanted full submission. Algernon was offered the chance to return home peacefully, as long as he condemned his own actions and begged and groveled for forgiveness. Something that a person like Algernon with a stubborn sense of pride would never do. He was descended from a family of people who resisted tyranny of kings. To submit and condemn his actions would be to reject his family's proud legacy. So Algernon decided he would go into self-imposed exile. Algernon was quite aware that he knew people would think he's ridiculously stubborn. In a letter to his father, he explains that he knows people will think he's kind of silly and pompous, but he writes that, I know people will say I strain at gnats and swallow camels, that is a strange conscience, but I do not make myself, nor can I correct the defects of my own creation. I walk in the light God hath given me. If it be dim or uncertain, I must bear the penalty of my errors. I hope I do it with patience, and that no burden shall be very grievous to me, except sin and shame. So, with his pride intact, but his career in ruins, Algernon went into self-imposed exile from his homeland. Algernon began his exile by wandering between Sweden and Denmark before finally deciding to travel to Rome in about 1661. While there, he was generously given a villa and a place to stay called Frascati, south of Rome. Frascati to this day is still famous for its gorgeous villas and idyllic scenery. And while there, Algernon spent his days reading from dawn till nightfall, developing ideas of what a republic ought to resemble. In his scholarly isolation, Algernon remarked that my conversation is with the birds, trees and books. Despite immensely enjoying his time in Italy, Algernon began to long to serve his country again. In the end, the peace that he had found was built on rotten foundations. He lived solely for himself and was not of service to others. Despite being far from home, Algernon began to scheme and plot to restore the Republic of England he had once enjoyed. In 1663, he travelled to Holland, and while visiting University of Geneva, he left another controversial signing in a visitor's book where he wrote, Let there be revenge for the blood of the just. His attitude did not go unnoticed, as King Charles began to send assassins and spies to hunt down Algernon. Due to the clandestine nature of these operations, it's kind of hard to tell how many people tried to kill Algernon, but some historians argue that at one point Algernon had ten assassins looking for him, and that it was two serious attempts on his life. Algernon travelled to the Dutch Republic to curry support for the English Revolution, but the Dutch wished to secure their own borders and suggested that Algernon should travel to France instead. By 1666, Algernon had arrived at France and had an audience with the French King Louis XIV, who gave Algernon a modicum of support, but this ultimately fizzled out and Algernon was back where he had started. He was given special permission by the king to live in the south of France, and Algernon lived a life akin to a local aristocrat and was known by the name Le Comte de Sydney. We know very little about this 11-year period in Algernon's life, during which he lived in complete secrecy. For obscure and never reasonably explained reasons, King Charles had a dramatic change of heart in 1673 and granted Algernon a visa to return to England. Also somewhat inexplicably, Algernon did not return to England, possibly due to his stubborn pride, possibly due to fear. 
But by 1677, Ajnan returned to England for personal reasons, after 20 years of exile. His father was dying, and he wanted to be of service to him before the end. To this end, Charles allowed Algernon to return to England for six months on the condition that he steered well away from politics. When Algernon returned to England, he was immediately put under arrest, but not for political intrigue or conspiracy. Instead, he was put in a debtor's jail for a financial dispute with his brother-in-law. He was kept in prison for six months, during which his father tragically passed away. Algernon's father was well aware that Algernon and his younger brother were much more deserving of inheritance than their older brother, Philip and so he bequeathed them both the bulk of his estate. Philip immediately contested his father's will in an attempt to steal his brother's inheritance. Not backing down, Algernon assiduously pursued the full extent of his legal rights and won the case, but at the cost of the ire of his relatives, began to view him in an extremely poor light, with one even commenting that it is a wonder why no one bothers shooting him. Algernon had no intention of staying in England, but he found himself entangled in the life of England once more between his imprisonment and his legal battle over inheritance. With the beginnings of the exclusion crisis in 1678, Algernon re-entered political life. He ran for parliament four times. In 1678, he lost under extremely suspect circumstances. In 1679, he was forced to withdraw when his younger brother ran against him. And again, in 1680, he was re-elected to parliament, but his election was voided twice. The fourth time he ran for parliament, he was beaten through sham elections. At this point in time, the political situation was getting quite dire for Republicans. King Charles had a brother, James II, who would be the future king one day, and James encouraged Charles to abandon England's traditional institutions, favouring an all-encompassing monarchy like France. Because of James's schemes, people known as Whigs intended to exclude James from taking the throne, while also putting checks and balances on the monarch's power. Charles became so enraged by this opposition from the Whigs and their anti-court sentiment in Parliament that he dissolved it nearly instantly after it was formed, resolving, just like his father, to avoid Parliament at all costs. Republicans, knowing their history of Charles' father, who detested Parliament, began to talk of plans to resist and potentially depose the despotic king. With no more options for legal recourse, scores of plots and conspiracies began to ferment, with Algernon supporting efforts to oppose the king and his brother. But in 1683, a plan to assassinate the king known as the Rye House Plot backfired and failed. With the failure of the Rye House Plot, a whole web of conspiracies was unravelled, and many who opposed the monarchy fled the country. Among those who fled was the famous philosopher John Locke. But Algernon, on the other hand, was quickly arrested. Like most despots, Charles had really no interest in a fair trial for these conspirators, with Algernon's trial being especially dubious. Algernon was refused any legal counsel, not allowed to see a copy of his indictment, and the jury was not composed of his peers, fellow freeholders. Presiding over the trial was Lord Chief Justice Jeffreys, made no effort to hide his obvious intentions to convict Algernon by any means necessary. English common law demanded that if a person was on trial for treason such as Algernon, two witnesses must be provided. The only witness in the king's court could find was Lord Howard Esterick, who could only testify that Algernon had made some sort of contact with the Scots but no concrete plans to overthrow the king. Lacking a reliable witness, the court decided to utilise some unpublished manuscript pages from Algernon's chambers to show his guilt. These manuscripts were supposed to be the damning evidence of Algernon's malicious plans. Justice Jeffreys stated that these writings contained all the malice and revenge and treason that mankind can be guilty of. So what exactly was Algernon writing about? Sounds like he was writing about torturing puppies from Jeffreys' statement. But, in Jeffreys' own words, Algernon's writings were about how kings should be held accountable to the people or be deposed. 
This sounds like a pretty benign view for today, but at the time it was rebellious, controversial, and some would even say anarchic. Don't you know that God had appointed kings to rule over their subjects like fathers over their young children, with unlimited authority to do so? To modern ears, this sounds really ridiculous, but this is the norm for 17th century England, where many believed writers such as Robert Filmer, who thought that most people were simply born to be ruled by their superiors. But not Algernon. Algernon did not believe that God had caused some to be born with crowns in their heads and all the others with saddles on their backs. Instead, he believed political representatives were chosen by the people, and when they did not serve the people, they could be resisted with force if necessary. One judge described Algernon's writings as an argument for the people to rise up in arms against the king. But as Algernon pointed out, it's quite easy to quote someone out of context, and even if he did write this, he never actually published it, so it's hardly much evidence of anything. But, regardless of any logic, the seditious sentiments in Algernon's writings were deemed to be the equivalent of a required second witness, being an inanimate object. His trial was started around 10am and then at 6pm, and the entire time, Algernon was quite aware that the trial of nature was a bit of a sham. He tried to defend himself, only to frustrate the court judges as much as he could, but eventually he was convicted and sentenced to death. Upon hearing his condemnation, Algernon confidently said to the Chief Justice, My lord, feel my pulse and see if I am discorded. I bless God, I never was in better temper than I am now. While in prison awaiting his execution, people made pleas in his behalf, and Algernon requested to go into exile again. Still, these were rejected unless Algernon made a confession, which he believed would stain his honour. When Algernon walked up to the scaffold, he did so without any hint of fear. He did not make a speech, and instead handed a short note to the sheriff for publication, and afterwards a quick prayer. He extended his neck and told the execution he was ready. In his note, he lamented the injustice of the trial. He articulated his political beliefs that the people's consent gives magistrates or political representatives their authority, and as their consent was violated, revolution was not only permitted, but an obligation among free men. So what exactly will you say about Algernon Sidney? He lived a life marked by struggle and failure. Ultimately, his political ambitions came to naught, and he never lived to see the Commonwealth that he wished to see revived. But this is only half the story. Through his stoic attitude in the face of death and his willingness to give his life for his principles of a free society, Algernon lived on as a hero of republicanism. After the Glorious Revolution of 1688, in a much more open atmosphere, Algernon's masterwork, Discourses Concerning Government, was finally published in 1698. Like Locke's two treatises, Algernon's discourses were an extensive rebuttal of the infamous philosopher Robert Filmer's De Patriarcha, which argued in favour of unrestrained absolutism. For Algernon, there was only two ways to command many people through force or consent. Robert Filmer grounded political authority in force while Algernon based his on consent. No one is born into this world with a right to command anyone. There is a kind of brute natural equality among all humans. Algernon observes that in the state of nature before civil society, the liberty of one is thwarted by that of another, and once they are all equal, none will yield to any otherwise than by general consent. For Algernon, liberty is two things. It is an exemption from the domination of another, and is written in the heart of every man. Every person is responsible for their actions and ultimately answers to God, not to any mortal being. Violence does not have legitimate authority, with Algernon writing, for violence and fraud can create no right. God left humanity free to create governments to their own liking. There is no divinely sanctioned institutional arrangement. Every people is by God and nature left to the liberty of regulating these matters playing to themselves according to their own prudence. God left humanity free to form their own governments, but this does not mean that all governments are equally valid. Monarchy places all power with one fallible individual person, who is easily corruptible, and worse yet, this corruption will spread from the top down and affect the rest of society. 
transforming individuals into passivity at best, or even worse, sycophants. The hereditary nature of monarchy did not mean that the best person was chosen for the job, but some lucky soul who happened to be born at the time. Algernon argues that the best governments would be a republic with the rule of law, frequent elections, and constitutional checks and balances. Sound familiar at all? The best government is that which limits discretionary power of magistrates while also stopping any one man or group of men placing themselves above the law. Because whatever is done by force or fraud to set up the interests and lusts of one man in opposition to the laws of his country is purely and absolutely monarchical. But what happens when magistrates, despite all the restraints, use their power for their own good at the expense of the people? Algernon argues that people have a clear and obvious right to resist. He believed that government was like any other aspect of human life. With more knowledge, it would improve over time. This means at times, laws and institutions would eventually become outdated. So therefore, according to Algernon, no law made by man can be perfect, and there must be in every nation a power of correcting such defects, as in many time will arise. Importantly, Algernon did not base the legitimacy of government on historical claims. He wrote that no man or a number of men was ever obliged to continue in the errors of his predecessors. Institutions can be changed by consent or revolution. Institutional change and revolutions are a natural and essential part of human improvement. Algernon asks, if we can build houses, ships and forts better than our ancestors, why have we not the same right in matters of government, on which all others do most absolutely depend? Radicals in England admired Algernon, but his reputation was that of a national hero in 18th century America. Revolutionaries saw Algernon not only as an enemy of despotism, but an intellect akin to colossal figures like John Locke. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams were all massive admirers of Algernon. But by no means was an admiration of Algernon relegated solely to these three founders. A famous 1978 study found that only Cato's letters and Locke's two treatises could be found more often than Algernon's discourses in colonial libraries. Unlike Locke, who was renowned for his purely theoretical arguments, Algernon was famous not only for his intellect, but his strong sense of justice and character. This led to him being dubbed as the British Cato, because, like the famous Roman Cato the Younger, Algernon and Cato had both dedicated their lives to defending traditional liberties of their people, and both had bravely died in opposition to tyranny. But sadly, Algernon's fame quickly waned after the revolution, possibly because Discourse's message was so wholly absorbed into the American ethos that there was no real reason to keep reading him constantly. Discourses is also quite a hefty book that would be repetitive and slightly tedious. But, despite its slightly lackluster style for modern readers, it is still an extremely original contribution to political philosophy. Discourses is a book that stresses the importance of democracy and revolution in progressing forward the science of government through trial and error. The message it puts forward is radical, that no one must suffer the mistakes of their ancestors, and the revolution is not only a right, but beneficial for its corrective nature. While Algernon failed in returning England to a republican form of government, his writings were assimilated into the Whig canon. They are evoked by radicals to argue for democracy and the right to revolution. And despite his English origins, Algernon was revered as a national hero in America, time and time again. His name constantly crops up in the writings of American revolutionaries, who saw in Algernon not only theoretical arguments of a philosopher, but a role model who epitomized an indomitable spirit dedicated to freedom. You often hear that victors write history, but this old adage isn't always so clear-cut. Algernon was most certainly not the victor, but his posterity helped ensure victory for subsequent generations. Algernon Sydney shows how even our failures can echo throughout time and breathe new life into causes we may never see, but will most certainly shape the face of the earth.
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.